free will, what's called free will, and God's will. Now, in Acts chapter 3, we find in the first 11 verses that the impotent man, there was an impotent man that was healed as Peter and John, first 11 verses of chapter 3, went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer about the ninth hour. Now, if you count from 6 o'clock in the morning forward to nine hours, that's in the afternoon, about 3, about 3 o'clock. And there was a man that was lame from his mother's womb, verse 2, and he was daily there at the gate, apparently asking for alms. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, verse 3, Peter felt, I guess, impressed by the Lord to fasten his eyes upon him. And he said, John said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up. Immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. It's as though you came up to this building and there was somebody out there always begging. And you look around and he's coming down the aisle, walking and leaping uh, in the worship service. And all the people saw him, verse 9, walking and praising God. And they knew that it was that fellow that had been sitting and begging for alms at what they called the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which was happened. Now, it says in verse 11, as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. He wrapped his arms around them. He wasn't going to let them go. He was holding them. While he held them, it says all the people began to run together in the porch that is called Solomon's porch, greatly wondering. Well, Peter takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to him. So beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 16, Peter tells them about Jesus, the Messiah, whom they killed. Verse 14 you denied the Holy One and the Just One. You desired a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead. We are witnesses of it. We were there. We saw him. We've talked to him. And in, through his name, this is how this man has been made strong. Verse 16. Now, brethren, he says, I know that the nation of Israel did this in ignorance. That's verse 17. But he said, I want you to know that this is the fulfilling of the scriptures that God has spoken to us by the prophets. Verse 19, so repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, which before was preached, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets 
since the world began. He goes on and he enlarges about Moses, uh, verses 17 through 26. He urges them to repent and believe on Jesus as Messiah. Then we get into chapter 4, and all this tumult brought the priest and the captain of the temple and some Sadducees got their attention, and they came in. The word spread quickly. So when we get to chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, it says, Verse 1 of chapter 4, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, you can see they laid hands on them in verse 3, and uh, they put them in hold, and that is they arrested them and uh, put them in hold until they could be examined. Verses 5 through 7, they were examined by a committee of the Jewish Sanhedrin, made up of the leaders. You can see that in verse 6, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John Alexander, as many as were of that kindred of the high priest, they were to gather together at Jerusalem. And they ask him in verse 7, by what power, by what name have you done this? And it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began again to talk to them about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, they admit what they've done, verses 8 through 12, and they say, uh, uh, they give this witness to these people who are examining them. And then, in verses 13 through 22, they are threatened, and they are dismissed. They go back to the gathered Christians and began in verse 23 through 30 to praise the Lord that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus, and they ended up by asking the Lord for boldness to preach the word. Look at verse uh, 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And the Lord, con he, he confirmed that this was of him. They, when they prayed, verse 31, the place was shaken where they were assembled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So in verses 31 through 33, the Lord gives them assurance with outward and inward sounds, signs. And then in verses 34 through 36, it says their hearts were all bound together, all the believers, as one, and they sold many of their possessions to support the gospel. Now, we've looked at these verses that I'm going to use for this particular study many, many, many times. And it was after these disciples, Peter and John and the other, came back together, they all came back together, and they had a, a little prayer meeting. If you notice verse 23, when they were arrested, they were threatened, and they were let go with the commandment not to preach anymore in the name of this Jesus. That's verse 18. Verse 18, they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, when they got together, verse 23, they went to their own company, and they reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And then they had a prayer meeting. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord, verse 24, 
This is what they said. Lord, you're God. You have made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. By the mouth of your servant David, he said this in Psalm 2, you said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? You said the kings of the earth were going to stand up and the rulers were going to gather themselves together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his Christ. And they said it has come to pass, verse 27, of a a truth against your holy child, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontiff Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, all gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, I ask in our study Sunday, why is it that we human beings have a real problem with bowing to the Lord? Well, bowing to the Lord means submission. It means a humbling of oneself. It means to show honor. It means to exalt the Lord. And I suggested that this detestation of bowing down is symptomatic of our bowing down to the Lord in this matter of salvation. So the issue is a matter of the will. Will I bow to the will of God, or will God submit to my will? Will my will be done, or will the will of God be done? If God's will is done, does that mean I don't have a choice? When I do something contrary to the will of God, does that mean the will of God is overthrown? That is, that I have had my way and God doesn't have his way. There's one thing that we'll all agree on, and that is this, that God is smarter and he is more powerful than we are. So he could certainly force his will on us regardless, or he could just take us out of the way. He could do that rather than just contend with us. Brother Ralph Barnard used to say, yes, brother, you have a will, and God has a will. And there is a battle between your will and the will of God. But if you win the battle, you get the prize, and the prize is hell. I have said repeatedly, and I said this repeatedly last Sunday, that the only means of peace and comfort when it really matters in this world is to be reconciled to the will of God. To be able to say from the heart, once you've done everything you can do, that's right. Once you've said everything you can say, that's right. The only place of comfort is to say, not my will, but thine be done. And according to the Bible which we believe to be the word of God, the sure road of perdition, the road of destruction, the road of trouble, is built on the opposite premise. Cosmic bully. Are we free to make decisions and choices? Uh, George Jones, one of my songs, favorite songs of his uh, that he sang years ago is called Choices. And these are the words of the opening line. I've had choices since the day I was born. And there were voices that told me right from wrong. If I had listened, I wouldn't be here today living and dying with the choices I've made. So even George knew something about 
us having the ability to make choices. Now, I hope to show you in these studies, and I'll tell you this up front, that you are free to make your choices, and God is free to make his. But let me say this here and now. The Bible says that the God of the Bible is infinitely good. Now, if God is good, regardless of what you can figure out up here, and I hope the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to all of us here, but if God is good, I can trust him. And not only can I trust him with my soul, I can trust him with all that I have. And if I believe that he is good, if I really believe he's good, then why wouldn't I trust him? Wouldn't a man be a fool or a woman not to trust in a God who promises to work all things after the counsel of his will for your good? Uh, such a man, in my opinion, or a woman would certainly be a fool. But by nature, we don't really trust anybody. We don't trust anybody but ourselves when it comes down to it. And uh, we have to get over that by the grace of God. In other words, it's not something you can just decide to get over. It's something that God himself will have to enable you to do. Because we don't trust anybody but ourselves, we will never trust him unless he does something for us. Now, we have a problem, and this problem is called sin, and that's the reason we can't trust him. Listen to these words. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53, 6. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's de desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Is trusting the Lord doing good? Yes. Is repentance good? Yes. Well, he said you're not going to do good by your nature. Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seek after God. They've all gone out of the way. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Ephesians 2, we were born dead in trespasses and sin until the Lord made us alive. We lived according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now continuously working in all the children of, of disobedience who do not submit themselves to the will of God through faith in Christ. And then Paul says, that's all from Ephesians 2, he says we all were there, all of us were there. Those of us who are Christians, we were all there in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In other words, we were deserving of the wrath of God. John 3.36 says the same thing, that we were under the wrath of God. So I want you to note now, don't forget this, that we were born in this state of mind, and uh, I, I, I think we have to ask, where did this problem come from? This problem of us not being able to trust God, this problem of us being blinded in our minds and in our hearts, where did it come from? Well, it's pre-Adamic, of course. We all know this here. It began before Adam was created. Lucifer, whom we call the devil and Satan and the serpent 
and the great dragon and many other names, he had a sevenfold problem with God. And this is before man was created. He had a sevenfold problem with God. Number one, he did not want to be consigned to the role that was given him. Whatever he was given to do, whatever he was created to do, he did not want to do that. He wanted to be something other than that or something above that, something over than that. He wanted to be in a higher plane. Number two, he did not want to have to answer to his creator. He didn't want to answer to anybody but himself. Number three, he did not want the will of God to determine the nature of all reality. In other words, who determines what is good and what is bad? How do we know what's good and what's bad? Do you realize that when you see people on television, and uh, maybe they are somebody who uh, is what we would call an ungodly person. When I say ungodly, I mean somebody that's without God, somebody that doesn't know the Lord. They don't necessarily have to be a criminal, but they'll, they, they have done some things. They don't want anything to do with God. But when somebody steals from them, then they will say, well, that's not right. Well, by what standard is it not right? If you don't have a God, you don't have a standard for right and wrong. You don't have a standard for light and darkness. So this is a big, big, big contradiction here. And this began with Lucifer, who did not want the will of God to determine the nature of all reality. He wanted to determine for himself what was good and what was evil. Why is it wrong to lie? Why is it wrong to steal? Why is it wrong to covet? Why is it wrong to not worship God? Why is it not good to not honor one's parents? Why is murder wrong? Why are all of these things wrong? Because God says they're wrong. Because he says they're wrong. And without that, you don't have any guidelines, any principles, any foundation for ethics. I have a friend down in Chattanooga. He, he went to school all of his life. Maybe he's watching us tonight. Dr. Ben Mitchell. And I met Ben when he was just a teenager, maybe 15 years old, something like that. And he went to school for a long, long, long time. He got a doctorate degree in ethics. Speaks all over the place right now on ethics. And the principle of his ethics, of course, is, is the scripture. Without the Bible, without the Word of God, without God, you don't have any foundation for what's right and for what is wrong. And this is something that the devil didn't want, and it's something that men didn't want. We'll get to that in just a minute. Without these guidelines, we don't have a clue what's right and what's wrong. A man that's a thief, he doesn't want somebody stealing from him. But if there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as stealing. No one owns anything. Everybody owns everything. By the way, that's the lie of communism, which is nothing but full-blown humanism. Humanism is communism full-blown. And humanism says, as I hope to show you, if not tonight, the next study, that man 
is the measure of things. Humanism says that man determines what is right and wrong. Man determines what is good and bad. Man determines reality and not God. And the man or the group of men who take over, history shows us this, they set themselves up as God and they say what the rest of men and women can do. Isn't that what's going on in China today? Isn't that what Hitler wanted? Isn't that what Stalin wanted? Isn't that what Mao and China wanted? And that's what Lucifer wanted. That's where it came from. Number four, Lucifer did not want the will of God to be done at the expense of his will. Number five, Lucifer Lucifer would not confess thy will be done in earth and heaven. Number six, Lucifer knew that there could only be one free will in the universe. And number seven, he wanted to be the one with that free will. I'll tell you about that more in just a moment. So listen again. (coughs) These are the same things that he tempted Adam with. Adam, by sinning, by taking his wife's word, who took the word of Lucifer, did not want to be consigned to the role given him. God put him in the Garden of Eden and said, you can have anything you want. They weren't happy with that. Number two, he didn't want to have to answer to his creator. That's why he ran from him. Number three, he didn't want the will of God to determine the nature of all reality. Number four, he didn't want the will of God to be done at the expense of his will. Number five, he rebelled against the will of God on earth. Number six, he chose to freely assert his will rather than to submit to the will of God. And number seven, Adam was the one that was promised free will by Lucifer. Now I want you to consider a couple of comments that I hope to explain in our, in our next study. And listen to this now. We'll have to think in a little different way than we usually think. Lucifer argued that for Adam to have free will meant that the will of God could not be free. Is it possible for God's will to be free and for mine to be free as well? Lucifer said that it is not. Number two, God cannot freely do what he will with me if my will is as free as the will of God. Number three, if God cannot freely do as he wills with me, my will is sovereign over the will of God. Can you follow me there? If God can't do with me as he wills, my will is sovereign over his will. You understand that? Can I do what I will with God? No. Can God do what he will with me? Well, if the answer is no, we're at a standstill. Is it up to the devil what will be done? Is it down to God cast a vote for me and the devil cast a vote against me and now it's up to me and my will to decide who I'm going to serve? Is that where we are? 
Maybe his strategy is divide, divide and conquer. <laughs> it's vitally important that we understand the humanistic definition of free will. We've got to redefine some things. The humanistic definition is the satanic perspective of the will. So here's a question. Is man the measure of things or is God the measure of things? Let me give you a little example. Most of you have heard this example. I used to hear this all the time, years and years ago when I was doing some school. If a tree falls in the forest and no man is there, did it make a noise? Well, the, 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 the reasoning behind that is if a man is not there to see the tree fall and hear it fall, then it might as well not exist. But it leaves out the idea that it is God who sees things, even if men don't see them. Things aren't made true today until man says it's true. That's really what all the exploration of space is about. They're hoping to find something out there that will disprove that there is a God. And there's a lot of other explorations that uh, have the same reasoning behind it. Satan says that each person, each man, each woman may determine for himself what is good and what is real. Now, that's exactly what he told Adam in the Garden of Eden, or what he told Eve. God does know that in the day you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. You will determine for yourself. You will determine what good and evil is. And it's taken us thousands of years but now we've gotten down to the place where it's different for everybody. It may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. We are getting away from what we call absolutes or inexorable. And an inexorable law is a law that's always true for everybody at all times, regardless of where you are. That's an inexorable law. We're getting away from that. We're getting away from absolutes. Uh, a professor wouldn't let me continue at Vanderbilt years ago because he watched our television program. And he called me in, or I was, I was told by my sponsoring professor that this guy would not sign off on me getting my degree. And so I went to see him, and I was only, I was only auditing his class. I wasn't even taking it for, for, for credit. And uh, I asked him what his problem was. He said, well, I saw you on television. I watched several programs. And he said, I found out you believe in absolutes. Well, I felt like asking him, you know, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that was a problem for him because he was an ethics teacher and he was given all kinds of scenarios. I even remember some of them now. That's been over 30 years ago. Some of them now. Uh, where he gave these uh, unreal pictures of uh, a woman that was carrying a child and, and, and the tube comes out of her and goes to somebody else and talking about who's going to be responsible for the baby's death, should the baby live, should the baby die, whatever. All of that kind of stuff was reasonably uh, unreasonable. And he was talking about man being the measure of things and determining 
for himself what is good and what is evil. Now, the essence, and I want you to get this, the essence of the phrase free will. I want you to think about this now. Why do we use terminology like that? The word or the term in the King James Version is translated a couple of times, but it's in the, it's in the offering of sacrifices in the Old Testament. You had certain required sacrifices, and then you had sacrifices or offerings that you could give over and above the required sacrifices, and they were called voluntary sacrifices. And if you wanted to give over and above, if you want to get over 10, 10%, you want to give 15%, that's between you and the Lord. That's over and above that. But this whole idea of what we call free will, let me tell you what it really means. It means free from the will of God. That's what it means. You are as free as you can be. You can make decisions about anything you want to make. So what do you mean you're not free? Well, you are free, and I hope to show you that. But you ain't free from the will of God. Being free will in today's theology and especially philosophy means free from the will of God. Now, it is evident that God created man with the power of volition. He created man with a will. God told Adam when he made him what was allowed and what was prohibited. Adam had the power to choose to disobey. He had that ability. Of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it in the day you eat. You will surely die. He had that ability. He had that uh, volitional power. Now, you know, animals don't have rational power of volition. They, they uh, 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 act by instinct. You know, a lion doesn't decide whether he's going to have a, a, a zebra or a, an antelope for dinner. He doesn't ask Mrs. Lion, would you like to have zebra this evening? We had antelope last evening. The lions and the animals, from, from the squirrels in your yard to the birds, they all act by instinct. They don't act by rationalization as human beings do. They don't decide on what they're going to eat or what they're going to do. They do it by instinct. It is put into them by their creator. So again, the conflict of wills began before Adam was created. Now, I'm not going to take you over to Revelation 12 because we don't have time to do that. But Revelation 12, verses 3 and 7 and 9 is all about the revolution in heaven led by Lucifer. And how he, as the, the great dragon, I'll read verse 9 for you. And that great dragon was cast out of heaven, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now here's how Lucifer reasoned, and this is the lie that he conveyed to Adam. This is what he said. He said, if God has free will, nothing and no one else can have it. If God is free 
to work his will, you are not free to work yours. If everything or anyone other than God has free will, then God's free will is eliminated. Either God must be free to rule over my will, or I must be free to rule over God's will. Either God can do nothing unless I let him do it, or I can do nothing unless he wills to let me do it. I can't be free to have my will over and against the will of God and be free and God be free to have his will over and against my will at the same time. Now, most of y'all are not going to be reading all these old dry philosophers. But these philosophers have wrestled with this problem of will and still wrestle with it. Some of you have heard a philosopher named John Paul. I called him Sartre. Most of them say Sartre. John Paul Sartre, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, all of these philosophers wrestled with this idea of will, and they came to the point of saying that if men have absolute free will, there can't be a God because there can't be two free wills in the universe. I'll deal with some of that next week. I hope I can make some of this a little bit more clear for you. But remember this, remember this. To have free will means from the devil, it means to be free from the will of God. All of us are just as free as a bird to be what we want to do, but this is not having to do with our salvation yet. This presents a problem because how can anything or anyone be free from the will of a God who created everything and who rules everything that he created and he rules it according to his will? Here's what it says in Ephesians 1.11. He says, we have obtained an inheritance and that inheritance was predestinated according to the purpose of him who worked all things after the counsel of his own will. Now the only way that free will can exist is if it put God out of business. And the only way God can be put out of business is if his will can be resisted or overthrown. So to resist the will of God is to destroy him. I've said this many times over the years. If God cannot carry out his will, he is as good as dead. What would God be without his sovereign will? He would be dead. The whole point of Lucifer's rebellion and temptation of Adam and Eve was to assert their will over and against the will of God, to put God out of business by overthrowing his will. That's exactly the aim of Lucifer. If God is sovereign, on the other hand, and his will is sovereign, are human beings really free? Now, how many of you I know all of you have, but have you ever heard an old song 
And I heard this from someone else, so I can't take credit for it. But have you heard an old song called Something's Gotta Give, Something's Gotta Give, Something's Gotta Give? You ever heard that? It was done by Frank Sinatra. Well, in the first line of that song, it says this, the opening lyrics. When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me, you can bet, as sure as you live, something's got to give. <laughs> All right, now think about that for a minute. If an irresistible force, and you can picture that in your mind, an irresistible force, if that meets an immovable object, and that irresistible force is successfully resisted, then that irresistible force is not irresistible, is it? If an irresistible force meets an immovable object and it moves the object, then the object is not immovable, is it? No, it's not. So you can picture an irresistible force and you can picture an immovable object, but you cannot, in your mind, you don't have the ability to picture the two of them coming together and one of them moving the other one and one of them resisting the other one. You got to have it either or, right? Those lyrics in that song state an impossibility. Because, as I say, if the irresistible force meets an immovable object and the force is moved, it's not immovable. And if it's not moved, then the irresistible force is not really an irresistible force. So we can conceive of either one of those, but not both of them together. And that's what we've got right now until we look into the Scriptures when we look at the will of God and the will of man. And my question is, if God's sovereign, if his will is done, do we have any freedom? And if we have freedom, what kind of freedom do we have? And how does that jive with the will, the free will of God? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we ask you for help as we consider the will of man and the will of God. We pray that you'll help us as we look into these things to understand that you have ways that are above our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts and that your ways are unsearchable and they cannot be figured out by the finite minds of mortal men and women. I just pray tonight as we end this study that you'll help us to trust you. As, as I said at the beginning, that you are good, you are gracious, and you work out everything for good to those who trust you. And I pray that you'll help us to be, as the Lord Jesus said, as little children who simply trust our Heavenly Father in all of our affairs with our souls, and with our lives. We pray tonight for those brothers and sisters that we have continuously mentioned to you who are sick, who are ill, who have been going through some valleys, that you will be pleased to heal them, to deliver them, 
and above all to manifest your presence to them that they will know that your promise, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, is being kept. Without you, Lord, we can do nothing. With you, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Thank you for giving us this time together. May your name be glorified. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen.